Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone, before we get going, I'd just like to encourage everyone, if you have not been vaccinated against COVID-19, please do so. As we've discussed on previous episodes of this program, the Delta variant is out there, it is highly contagious, and it is moving through the unvaccinated population. For the good of you, your family, and those that love you, please go to vaccineinformation.org. It'll give you all the resources you need to find out about where, when, and how you can get vaccinated. Let's stop this thing in its tracks if we can. Let's not let one more person that needs to get sick. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by the author and legal scholar, Professor Cass R. Sunstein. He's written a multitude of books, including two new titles this year, This Is Not Normal, The Politics of Everyday Expectations, and Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. Professor Sunstein also previously served in the Obama administration as Administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and is currently the Robert Walmsley University Professor at Harvard, where he's the founder and director of the Program on Behavioral Economics and Public Policy at Harvard Law School. Professor Sunstein, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So I dove into two of your books here in the last week and a half or so, both of which are fascinating to me. One, because it's about the humanity of politics and the other of the sort of behavioral economics that you and so many of your colleagues have written about for a long time that I find personally fascinating. But I want to start with this is not normal. So obviously, if this was 24 months ago, you probably wouldn't have written this book. None of us expected a pandemic to be in the offing. But I want to get into a little bit of how you conceived of this. Was it simply you sort of observing what you were seeing from a macro perspective in American politics that drove you to write this book? And then I have a few specific questions from within it. It was actually much more random. It involves a psychological study called Prevalence-Induced Concept Change. That's a mouthful. Study shows that if you see a lot of really blue colors, and then you see purple colors, you will see the purple colors are definitely not blue. But as the number of blue colors in a set of dots you're seeing, say, on screen, starts to get smaller and smaller, then you start seeing purple as, well, maybe that's blue. So what we see as red or yellow or purple or blue or orange or green depends on what other colors we're seeing. Now, that tiny, tiny psychological paper mostly involves colors, but it also involves ethics. If you're surrounded by, let's say, a lot of unethical behavior and you're evaluating projects for ethical approval, you will see borderline things as they're okay because everything else is horrible. Or if you see hardly anything horrible, but only things that are kind of borderline, then borderline things will start to seem they're bad. 
And this is also true for whether faces are threatening. If you see a lot of really angry faces, a little anger in a face seems like that's nothing. That's a nice person. Bad. You see no angry faces. If you see someone who's kind of angry, you think that person's really, really mad. I found and find this paper electrifying because it shows you that what you see in terms of colors, in terms of friendliness or not of faces, in terms of ethically okay or not, depends on what else is prevalent. And if you think of the rise of liberty or the squashing of liberty, think of America at its best, the rise of liberty, or Germany at its worst in the Nazi period, the squashing of liberty, it's really about prevalence-induced concept change. So I just remember a few years back, and again, it pops up occasionally just on the color piece. On Twitter, occasionally, there will be is this dress blue or gold? And people will get into these really knockdown drag out fights for Twitter, which is saying something about what color this dress happens to be. And so what you're saying is, is that depending on what else it is you've seen is going to determine what that dress looks like. Right. So sometimes there are real optical uh, tricks where what's color something is depends on kind of how your eye's doing and whose eye it is. Is something different, really, which is whether we see something as blue when it's borderline depends on how much clearly blue we're seeing. Whether we see something as, let's say, corrupt, or whether we see something as an infringement on equality depends on what else we're seeing. So in a world in which, let's say, there's a lot of really bad corruption, if an official says, how about a little bribe? We might think that's not so bad. That's kind of okay. But in a world in which corruption is abhorrent and squashed and you don't have a lot of it, if someone asks for a bribe, that's outrageous. And this is connected with the American Revolution. I actually wrote much of the book in Concord, Massachusetts, in a house where the British soldiers came on April 19, 1775. There's a chapter that deals with the American Revolution where a commitment to freedom went viral, I guess we'd say today, and things that were taken as kind of fine, that were vestiges or more than vestiges of monarchy, started to seem like really bad colors and not like the color of everything else. And so as I was reading the book, you know, the foundational pieces of liberty and republicanism from Montesquieu Hamilton and Madison and John Jay writing the Federalist Papers in defense of the new Constitution after the Articles of Confederation were so clearly going to fail. I want to talk about that because it seems to me that we sort of maybe have let go why democracy mattered in the first place. Am I overthinking this? I mean, it just seems to me that it's not just about the individual dignity of a human being being put ahead of the state or the government but also that there's that connectedness, which is we are all individually above it, but we have made a decision as a community, large or small, to do these things together because to do them individually would be impossible. There's a lot in that. So to understand the American founding, the rejection of monarchical heritage in favor of the Republican is the way in. The idea is that the idea that some people are royalty and other people aren't became offensive to a commitment to 
the dignity of all. Now that idea has a strong individualist component about the inviolability of the individual. But the Constitution itself, which came after the Articles of Confederation flopped miserably, showed a recognition that self-governance entails something other than only the inviolability of every individual. It also entails a common project. I think that's what you're getting at, which is Madison's conception of republicanism. I think he's the number one person there, but Hamilton really mattered, and lots of people who aren't in the history books mattered, and they thought we need institutions, including pretty powerful court system, pretty powerful Congress, that all of which are at the center. So there's a central government, which makes the whole enterprise possible. And that was an innovation compared to the views that came from Montesquieu, which prized, let's call it comparatively extreme decentralization. And Madison and Hamilton at all thought a large republic could work because it would diminish the power of factions to move government in their preferred directions. All right, so we have the Constitution, 1789. George Washington is our first president, and, you know, we're off and running. And here we are 245 years later. And so now the things that they created in the abstract, I guess, right, because they didn't know how these things were going to work, right? They wrote them down. They were great. They were revolutionary ideas, to say the least. But now we're sort of facing some of the modern things that maybe either they were most worried about or couldn't foresee. And so one of the things that I was really interested in was this idea of lapidation, which, as I learned in your book, is another word for stoning, but not so violent, as you say. And it seems that lapidation also has a little bit of the sort of cancel culture idea, too, which is there are folks who cross some boundary for whatever reason, and as they cross that boundary, there is a, as you called it, sort of a citizen's police force ready to be judge, jury, and I don't want to call it executioner, but for lack of a better way to put it. But the thing that how you end the discussion about this is that republics for whom this becomes a norm, it can be pretty tough. There are some ideas that once were considered, I guess, beyond the pale, right? They weren't fit for public consumption. Maybe you thought them, but you never said them. But if the lapidation becomes the rule, whatever their thought might be, they're going to more likely keep it in their head rather than share it because they're afraid of this mob. Think of the founders, if you would, as rejecting a conception of the normal in favor of something involving self-government. And that was, as you say, a revolutionary thing where what was previously taken as defining of what we accepted and didn't accept was somewhere between hammered and obliterated. Now, the idea of lapidation is about someone who violates that taboo. It could be someone who, let's say, says in 1975, I think men and women have different roles in society, and that's fine, and that helps account for the fact that women aren't in the workforce in the numbers they now are. Okay, so someone says that. That statement in 1975 would be, I think, rightly challenged in 1975 or 65 or 55 or 45. But to do the equivalent of stoning that person might be inconsistent with a 
foundation of a democratic society, which has to do with humility and respectful engagement rather than casting out. Now, when I say lapidation, you're right on what I'm trying to do, which is the word refers to stoning, but it's softer. So I think we need a term. I don't like the term cancel culture. It has something which is a little too, you're in the cancel culture or you're not. The obscurity of the word lapidation, this may not be the best idea on my part, but the obscurity of the word lapidation, I think, is a virtue. Yeah. And so that was another thing about the norm, right? And norms are constantly changing. Sometimes they are contracting and other times they're expanding that. And either that contraction or expansion can be good or bad, depending on what it is. And it's sort of constantly flowing. And I feel like, at least from, you know, as someone who has been in politics for most of my life, I never thought about it that way. But it's a shift that's ongoing. And it is much like maybe time in history itself, right? It ebbs and flows. It's not linear necessarily. So to your point about lapidation, that, you know, in 1975, you could maybe say that it would be wrong in our context of today. But that statement in 1975 would probably be seen radically different by the majority of society in 2021. So there are certain things that might be said about same-sex marriage that would now, in my view, rightly be regarded as deeply offensive. If they were said in 75, at least the general reception would not have the same widespread negativity that they would now. I think it's super interesting where there's outrage expansion and outrage contraction. So there's things that we are really outraged about now that 30 years ago or 50 years ago, not so much. And there are things now that we aren't outraged about that would be very outrageous back then. And to see that, you can hold two thoughts in your mind at once. On many of these issues, the arc of history is bending toward justice while also having a feeling of modesty and of forgiveness is a little too aggressive even because it suggests that they were bad and were good. And even if in some sense that's true, to think of ourselves as morally superior as human beings rather than as beneficiaries of a good arc of history, that's probably better. To think maybe we got to participate in it, but to congratulate ourselves as individuals is rarely adequate. To consider congratulate ourselves culturally is a pretty good idea. So it feels like there are many, regardless of political persuasion or party or whatever the issue is, for whom, and I might be guilty of this myself, that the first step is taking in your own mind or in our own minds a perfect morality to our position, that we have come to this position either in a hurry or maybe over years, over decades, we have now come to this position and it is infallible. Therefore, if you agree with me, I am your best friend. And if you disagree with me, then you must be my sworn enemy. Is that something that happens overnight? Has it happened throughout our history? Does it come in waves? Does it rise and fall given all of the other things? I think one of the things in your book also talked about how there are people who, for whom history is written but it ignores the vast majority of individuals for whom their individual actions, as you, I think you referred to it as the butterfly flapping its wings, also have an impact, even if it's not written about. I know I've talked about a couple of different things there, but I want to start with this sort of instant morality, for lack of a better way to put it, 
and how it reduces the ability to have a cogent and coherent conversation with someone with whom you may have legitimate disagreements. So I said the book was inspired by a very short essay about color perception. It was also inspired by some books about the Holocaust, where the rise of Nazism was depicted in the books that interested me and interest me in real time by people who were there. And the thing I learned from this is that to live with the rise of the Holocaust in real time is to see the rise of a different conception of what's normal pretty fast, but not that fast, where what was once horrifyingly abnormal starts to become normalized. And what was once conceived of as completely normal, let's say the relationship between Germans who were Jewish and Germans who weren't, that which was taken as completely normal started to be denormalized. And then with relative speed, but not instantaneously, everything flipped. And that helped motivate the book. And I saw that historical account of the rise of Nazism as being a kind of twin to this very narrow psychological study of the perception of threatening faces and the perception of colors. But my particular focus is on, and the pandemic is a reflection. I finished the book in the context of the pandemic. I actually had COVID-19 when I finished the book, but I both lived and saw a changing conception of the normal with respect to what daily life is like. And while in a way it's pedestrian and boring to say that, what actually happened where our society kind of turned on a dime, that's really interesting to see people working from home in a way that they would have thought bizarre or real. And then pretty soon it became normal. And when wearing masks, which to see that would have been to see something from the Stephen King made for TV movie, that's really interesting that it became a part of daily life that at least a large number of people found normal. So the immense power of what's normal in determining what we perceive as legitimate or not, it can go either way. That's surprising because we're always in the midst, of course, of real time and to get inside of it and see its contingency. That's not what most of us do most of the time. So I want to use that idea as a segue to the second book that you, you've released this year. Some people never write one. You wrote two in the same year about noise and this idea of noise and how it affects human judgment. And let me ask you this. And again, as you and I noted before we were talking, I consider myself a fairly bright guy. And this book is a lot smarter than I am, right? It's very interesting, but it's a lot smarter than I am. Given the you and your two co-authors, that doesn't surprise me. But in the context of, you know, a lot of the stuff you discuss in the book is in the context of, let's say, business, how one insurance claims adjuster may decide on something versus another, and that there were either studies that you relied on or studies you did yourselves that showed that there's a, a huge variance in these things and that, you know, there is a cost to that noise, whether it's financial or otherwise. But let me ask you this. When we're talking about human judgment and noise, what role does noise, as you and your co-authors conceived it, have in, you know, how folks might decide to get a vaccine, not get a vaccine, wear a mask, not wear a mask? How do you guys see that? Because those are judgments and those are decisions. Now, they're ultimately individual, 
but they have community outcomes, they have state outcomes, they have international outcomes. Over the last 40 years, bias has gotten a ton of attention. You think of bias as you know discrimination, where you favor, let's say, young people over old people, or you can think of bias as cognitive bias, where you might be too optimistic about things, or they might be focused on today and tomorrow and not the next year. It's called present bias. Biases are things where there's a systematic tendency to go in one direction. So if you stand on a scale and it shows you it's five pounds heavier than you actually are, that's a bias scale. So think of bias as something that is well understood. It has a lot of different manifestations. And bias has charisma. It's like Elvis Presley or Taylor Swift. It's the star of the show. What we want to focus on is something very different, which is variance. Imagine you have a scale that shows you half of the week as five pounds heavier than you actually are, and half of the week is five pounds lighter than you actually are. Or imagine you have a judge who doesn't actually impose more severe sentences than people deserve, but just as like a random judge. Some people get five years more than they should, and some people get five years less than they should. Or imagine there's someone who is grading papers at university who isn't a very severe grader, a very lenient grader, just a random grader. That's noise. So variability is like a character in a Hitchcock movie whom you never notice until the last scene who turns out to be the killer. And the thesis of the book is that noise is the killer that you don't see. Bias, that's a killer too, but you can see bias. Variability is all around us and it causes big problems. So it's the high blood pressure of decision-making, the silent killer. <laughs> it's the silent killer, exactly right. And what we find is the human mind is a noisy measuring instrument. Doctors are noisy. Judges are noisy. If you go before a judge, the judge might say probation, you're not so bad. Another judge is supposed to the same, might say five years in jail, you're really bad. And that's our world. We have a noisy legal system. Businesses are noisy. If you have a complaint about, let's say, a computer you got and go to the person who's been called to your case, the person might say, sorry, we gave you a computer that didn't work. That's life. Buy a new one. Someone else might say, we're going to replace that computer. I'm so sorry. That's a noisy customer complaint department. Whether you get promoted or hired often depends on a lottery. And this is true all over the operation of humanity, let's say. If you'll forgive, I'm going to describe three kinds of noise, the first two of which are really simple and the third of which is the most important. First simple one is our moods determine our judgments. So if we're really happy and we're judges, we might say uh, the person's not so bad, probation. If we're really sad because our favorite sports team lost or because the weather's awful outside, we might say jail. Doctor might do something very different if the doctor is full of energy and high spirits than if the doctor is really tired and had enough. That we call occasion noise. It's within each of us. Each of us is noise. What job we take, what we do with our colleagues, that's noise within the person. That's really, I think, really interesting. And it's a big problem. It leads to mistakes and unfairness. Then there's noise, let's call it level noise where some people are just more severe than other people, not within the person. You might be, you seem to be really nice. 
So you might say to uh, various types, you get a good grade, where the grade could be a promotion or the grade could be a literal grade, whereas there's someone, a colleague of yours, who's severe and gives people much worse outcomes. That's system noise. That's really important. And it's everywhere. It adversely affects businesses and institutions of all kinds. Those are the two that are intuitive. The one that's not so intuitive, but the most fun and the most important is pattern noise. We find in most domains, that's the dominant one. And the idea is that some employers will think, I care a lot about whether the person has work experience. And I'll hire the person with work experience, but not the person with a great university who cares about that. Someone else might say, I want to know if the person went to a great university. Work experience, not so much. That doesn't really matter. And then you'll get very different judgments depending on what pattern of assessments people make. This works not just for hiring, by the way, it works for medical diagnoses, certainly in psychiatry, but also with respect to things like, you know, heart disease. And it works also very much in the legal system where someone might say shoplifters, they're horrible. Drug offenders, I don't care that much about that. Another judge might say drug offenders, that's a scourge, big sentence. Shoplifting, ah, kids do that. Let me ask you this, because let me use that last example of the judge has an opinion. Drug dealers are a scourge, shoplifters, small potatoes. Is that an opinion? Is that bias? Or is that noise? Or is it all of it? Well, the noise would arise if it turned out that different judges have different foundations for their sentences. Noise would be variance across judges who are supposed to be the same. And if you're not upset about this yet, I really want you to be, because it's a scandal if whether someone ends up with five years in jail or probation depends on a lottery. That is, which judge do they draw? Now, we might think that one or another judge is biased. We might think a judge who is really upset about drug offenses is biased. Or we might think a judge who's not upset about drug offenses is biased. The cool thing, or one of the cool things about noise, is you can find it even if you don't have clarity about who's biased and who's not. You can still say, you know, a scale that shows me as five pounds heavier than I think I am is noisy if it also shows me half of the time as five pounds lighter than I think I am. That's a big problem. And the problem with a noisy system is the errors don't cancel out. They add up. You have a doctor who's overdiagnosing a lot of patients and another doctor in the office next door who's underdiagnosing. Those don't cancel out. They add up. Right. Because if it's three on one side of the hallway and three on the other, it's not zero. It's six. Exactly. It took me as the third author of this book a long time to get that clear because the human mind sees bias. Gosh, everyone is discriminating against women. That's horrible. Those errors add up. That's true. But if it affirm half discriminate against women and half discriminate against men, they don't cancel out. Even if you have on balance, no discrimination against one gender or another, but half of the men are treated unfairly and half of the women are treated unfairly. And that's a lot of unfairness. It sounds like we understand how to count noise or at least understand noise. Now, how do we deal with it? So 
we are keen, my co-authors and I, on something called decision hygiene. And the reason we're keen on decision hygiene is think before COVID times, you'd wash your hands to protect yourself against a bunch of possible diseases. It's a safeguard against diseases whose name you might not even know. Usually don't. Usually don't. So decision hygiene is similar. Bias is like a disease where you want a medicine that if it works, it'll stop you from, let's say, being too optimistic. But for noise, you want hygiene. Guidelines can cut noise dramatically. So when a baby is born in the United States, there's something called an APGAR score. You may have had one for your kids, where on certain dimensions, there's a numerical assignment, and then you add up the various numbers, and you know if the kid is healthy. It turns out the APGAR score really cuts bias and also cuts noise. So doctors and nurses who use that number are not very noisy. In fact, they're basically noise-free. Guidelines can be used in many domains in deciding whether someone is disabled so they get social security benefits. In the United States, we used to have just a judgment. Are they disabled enough? That was really noisy. Where different uh, adjudicators would reach very different decisions, which is unfair in the extreme and also a recipe for error. We now have guidelines, and the guidelines cut noise very significantly. For criminal sentencing, you can do the same thing. In business, for hiring and promotion, you can use guidelines. That's a great way of cutting noise. We need more APGAR scores. Here's another decision hygiene method, very simple and really intuitive. Get an independent opinion. So in medicine, it's sometimes standard practice to get a second opinion with respect to certain diagnoses. And that really cuts noise. So if you get a bunch of opinions and aggregate them, so you use the majority or average, noise is going to be cut really, really dramatically. And so let me ask you this. So much of what you have written about, not only in these two books, but also before, is the human condition, to oversimplify it. You talk about guidelines and you talk about norms, but all of these things are ultimately human creations. And therefore, we bring our own human frailty to them. So if I'm someone who, you know, I have to hire a new person and I say, well, I have these guidelines, but at the end of the day, you know, it's just going to be gut. I'm just going to go with my gut on the right person. How do you account for that? Well, there are two ways of hearing that. If a person really prizes his or her gut, the risk of mistake or of noise is very high. So the idea of relying on a gut as a foundation of judgment is a recipe for disaster. If what the person means instead, we'll take it three ways. First, my gut knows best. Good luck with that. An interview is a pretty good predictor of whether you're going to like the person. So if you want to hire someone you like, your gut isn't so bad. But if you want to hire someone who's going to do well in the job, it's not good. A third way to think of it is that the person is saying, I'm going to do whatever I can to make the right decision. I'm going to delay my intuition, but in the end, I'm going to rely on it. We think that's okay. So you might think before hiring someone, you're not going to say my intuition is awful or great, but instead I'm going to think about everything that matters to the job, like is the person a good leader? And then I'm going to think independently, can the person work? with a team. And I'm going to think independently, is the person really smart? 
if that matters for the job. And I'm going to think independently. Does the person have a good work ethic? Let's say those are four things you care about. You can assess each of those independently and maybe give them a score. That will help ensure that your gut doesn't screw you up, the technical term. In the end, you've graded the person along the four dimensions that matter. And then you think, no, I see all that. And my intuition is the person will be really good. You're probably not going to be all that noisy and all that biased. It's the patience that you're almost imposing on yourself to say, I'm not going to make this decision quickly. I'm going to be thoughtful about it. But the idea is like, slow down a beat and take yourself through this process. And at the end of the day, if your gut and your process came to the same conclusion, okay. But don't sacrifice one because of the other. Exactly. Well, listen, Professor Sunstein, this has been fascinating. Every time I read something that you or your colleagues write, I feel smarter even if I'm not. I want to thank you for joining me today. And for everybody out there, remember, Professor Sunstein has two new books out right now. The first, This Is Not Normal, The Politics of Everyday Expectations, and Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. Professor, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.